with that, let's, let's pray, and we'll look at Matthew chapter 21, verse, uh, I said 18, but really it's, it's, 20, it's 28. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this, uh, the, the story in the temple that is continuing to unfold before our eyes. Uh, Lord, your word slows down at this season of, of Jesus' life, Lord, this last week. And Lord, as we, um, as we dive into this story, uh, it's a Monday uh, prior to uh, Jesus' crucifixion. Lord, the, the tensions are rising, and Jesus' uh, co- confrontation of the religious leaders is, is building. And in, as, as he confronts these leaders, Lord, uh, we see that he is um, seeking to humble them, seeking to humble us, Lord, getting our hearts right um, to receive you as Savior, to walk with you as Savior. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use these two parables that we are going to look at today uh, in, in a way um, that changes us, Lord, helps us to have a better glimpse of who you are and what you desire from us. Lord, we thank you that you're a God of grace. We thank you that you're a God of mercy. Uh, Father, we, um, we love you, and we uh, offer our lives to you. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew 21, verse 28. <clears throat> but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of these two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. And he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to him. Or to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on to whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. And Father, we do thank you for your word. Father, we ask that your spirit would guide us through this text today. Lord, may we understand this parable or these parables correctly. Uh, May you convict us. May you guide us, Lord. May you lead us closer to you uh, through the teaching of your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is is really a continuation of last week's story. Um, Last week, to remind you, uh, Jesus, if we're going to just look at days... 
So today's story, um, the previous day, Jesus had woken up on a, on a Sunday, had, had a sort of a, a, they believe, a slow start. He makes the triumphal entry on the donkey into the, into the Temple Mount up to Jerusalem. Uh, he goes into the temple. He kicks over tables. He sort of challenges what the temple had become. And, and uh, he leaves. And the next morning, as they're heading early into the temple, he spots a, a fig tree. And the fig tree uh, had leaves on it. It, it should have, uh, with the amount of leaves that it had on it, there should have been something edible on it. Uh, Mark tells us that it was too early in the season for figs to be present. But, it, but if there were leaves, prior to the figs coming, there's sort of a flowery bud that they would have eaten. And, and so Jesus goes up to the fig tree. He sees all of the beautiful leaves. And as he thumbs through the tree, he sees that there's no fruit available on the tree to eat. And so he curses the tree. The tree dies. They sort of are like, how did that happen? And Jesus then begins to, to teach them about faith and relationship. And, 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 and this fig tree really served the purpose of, as a warning to the nation of Israel and how they had all of the leaves, meaning the religious sort of hoopla, that they had this big temple, there, was, there were sacrifices happening, this is the week of Passover. Everything external looked like it should be really good, that their relationship with God was solid. But as you examine uh, the leaves, as you go to search for fruit, the temple had no fruit. They were far from God. And it was Jesus' warning. And so then he makes his way into the temple, and he begins, he begins teaching. It would have been a, a casual teaching environment. And as he's teaching there, uh, the, uh, the, the Pharisees, or the priests, I should say, the, the priests and the elders come, and they say, by what authority are you teaching? They didn't deny that he had authority. They were questioning by whose, whose authority was he there teaching. And Jesus said, I'll answer your question if you just simply answer my question. And my question to you is, by whose authority did John the Baptist come? And so they sort of talked amongst themselves, and they, they sort of they, they reasoned, um, well, if we say that John's authority was from God, then he's going to say to us, then why did you not listen to him and to repent and to listen to what he said about my coming? And they say, but if we say that God, uh, John's authority is of man, the people are going to get upset at us and there's going to be a big commotion because they viewed John as being a prophet from God, which he was. And so when they wouldn't answer the question, Jesus says, well, neither will I answer your question. But today's story is just continuing from that scene. Last week, I, I referenced the screw tape letters and, 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 and the exchange there between uh, uncle and nephew uh, and the demonic realm of how to sort of uh, their plan of how they could sort of uh, throw a wrench into Christianity and, and, and to destroy uh, what God was doing through his church. And the thing that came up, he says, the best thing that you can do is to get them con- hooked on churchianity. Uh, which I went on to describe as sort of this, this idea of, of religion, not relationship. And, and God wants relationship. He, he wants us to walk with him closely. He doesn't want us to focus on the externals, to do a bunch of uh, things that make us look like we're good Christians when, when the reality in our hearts, we're far from God. Um, uh, last week, that was the thing that was sort of on my mind. This week in my study, a phrase popped up, that kept resurfacing. It's been, I've been giggling about it all week. And the saying is that God wants spiritual fruit, not, re, not religious nuts. And so, <laughs> so, so that seems to embody the issue that Jesus is addressing here. Remember, the question was authority. The question was John the Baptist. Uh, Jesus is going to transition from there to telling three parables. We're only going to look at, at, at two of the parables today. Um, the, the first one is these two sons in the vineyard. The next one is uh, the, the, vin, the vineyard that gets sort of taken over by, by the, the sharecroppers, those that were to manage the land. And then next week, we're going to look at the banquet feast. And all of these parables are, are really a beautiful, masterful story of Jesus. Uh, a parable is known on the front of your bulletins. It's written down there as one of the things, but, it, but it's a it's an earthly story that conveys a, a, a spiritual meaning or a heavenly uh, message. 
And so Jesus is trying to, to point out their hypocrisy in a, in a very colorful, in a very painful way, because at the end of these parables, they'll understand exactly what Jesus is saying and what he's doing and what he's implying. And I think that there's a lot of warning in these two parables for us as Christians today. So we look at verse 28. Jesus begins with a, with, with a question. He says, but what do you think? Okay, you priests, you elders, I want you to put on your thinking caps. I love that Jesus calls people to think, to reason, to examine the, the factual evidence. He, he doesn't want just a, bu- a bunch of people just sort of going through the motions, but, but he wants people to sort of think through um, the, the implications of the things that they're practicing, the things that they say they believe. So he says, what do you think? Now he's going to tell a parable. A man had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. I want to pause there. In American culture, this doesn't seem like a big deal. The, the youth are, are totally out of control. There's no respect for authority from, from parents to grandparents to law enforcement to any sort of authority. There, there's a total lack of any sort of respect for anybody that's in authority over you in our culture. So we read this and we think, oh, that just seems normal. I mean, seriously. But in their culture, this was absolutely unheard of. To, to be on the land of your father, who, who it's, a, it's a family business, to have this sort of audacity to, to speak back to the patriarch of the family, this was unheard of. They already, at their minds, they would have, they're like, this kid needs a beatdown. He needs to be taught some respect in how you treat elderly people. Like, who does he think he is living off his father's land and to come back and say, I will not? So they're already aghast at this sort of, at this story that's being told. Remember, this is all a story. Jesus isn't talking about something that actually happened. But afterward, he regretted it and he went. So this son, when his dad asked him to go work in the vineyard, he said, I'm not going to. His dad goes away. But as his dad goes away, he suddenly he, he had remorse, regret for what he'd said to his dad. And then he goes out to the vineyard and he, he works as his father had asked. And then his dad goes to Eddie Haskell, his other son. <laughs> Verse 30, the man came to his second son and said, or the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. And so now from the story, Jesus just told this parable. The, the, par- the parable is over. And now Jesus turns to the religious leaders again, these, these priests and the elders, and he asks them this question. Which of these two did the will of his father? Simple question. No, this isn't a trick question. Super easy to ask. Remember, he asked about John the Baptist. They had to go into sort of, they had to call the meeting discuss it with one another, and as they went around, they said, we can't answer this question. So these guys have a history of not wanting to answer Jesus' questions. But Jesus sort of sets up one that's super easy to answer. It doesn't even look like they had a meeting. They simply respond, the first. The the son that first said, no, I'm I'm absolutely not going to do it, Father. As soon as the dad leaves, the son has, God, that was really stupid of me. What was I thinking? I'm going to go, and I'm I'm going to do what my father said. And so when Jesus asked which one did the will of the, the, the father, they said, it's obvious the first son absolutely did the will of the father. And so now Jesus, now that he has them on the hook for what they said, he's about to turn this masterfully against them, uh, deep, deep convicting, wounding words. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that tax collectors and prostitutes, again, <laughs> shock value, tax collectors, were hated. See, we have the IRS, which it's, it's, it's really easy to build a case against the IRS in our day. Like, it's not, like I'm not, I'm not going to act like it's not difficult. But you get a letter for, that says IRS, that, that, like on the return label, that's kind of like, oh, oh, oh. I don't want to like open it. But back then it was even worse because tax collectors sort of rented out portions of land and from Rome, they said, oh, for this portion, I think I can make so much money. I'll pay a fraction of that price to Rome. And so then their job was to sort of extort money from people. There was no like set limit. They just got as much as they could. 
and they had already prepaid for the land, so they got to keep everything. So it, it was, they were hated. The Jewish law said that if your family member was one, you, you could disown them. Um, while you were expected to be honest with all people to a tax collector by, the, by religious law and practical, you, it was okay to lie to a tax collector. Um, they were hated. And, and prostitutes are right there, if not worse, with them. And so now suddenly, Jesus, they just are answer this simple question about these two sons. And now Jesus turns this whole story and he says, prostitutes and tax collectors? Now, what does he say about these guys? Prostitutes or tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Um, D.A. Carson says you can translate this uh, passage like this, that tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God, but you will not. So much more forceful. So here are these guys. They're the priests. They're the elders. They're the ones who are sort of the, the middleman between the people and God. And now Jesus is saying prostitutes and tax collectors, those on the very bottom rung of society, they're going to enter into the kingdom of God and you're not. Can you imagine the, the anger of these religious leaders? C.S. Lewis pondered this verse and he ended up writing... Um, as he, as he considered this verse about prostitutes, he writes this. He says, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous are in that danger. Which is, whoo. Uh, another uh, pastor, uh, Philip Yancey, he, he wrote a book called What Good is God? And in that book, he describes a time when he was invited to go speak to, um, I'm not sure if they were active prostitutes or is there such thing as recovering prostitutes or former prostitutes. I'm not sure what the terminology is. But he was asked to go speak to these prostitutes. There was some sort of conference for them or a ministry that was trying to care for them. And so he was invited to speak. And so as he sort of ran this idea past his wife, there was some discussion, apparently, uh, which I understand. Uh, his wife said, I think it's okay for you to go to speak to them. And, and Philip Yancey wrote back to the people hosting. He said, I, I would be more than happy to speak to them under one condition. At the end of my time of speaking, at the end of the conference, I want to be able to have some time of, of Q&A with the prostitutes. I want to discuss, I have a couple questions for them. Um, for, for my own benefit, it would be, it would be a, a blessing to me if I could speak with them, not to where I'm lecturing them, but where I can ask them questions. And so at this, at this point, he writes this. During, during one point of their conversation, he said, I had time for one more question. And he asked them, do you know that Jesus referred to your profession? Let me read you what he said. I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering into the kingdom of God ahead of you. He was speaking to the religious authorities of his day. What do you think Jesus meant? Why do you think he singled out prostitutes? So Philip Yancey is asking these prostitutes, help me understand. Can you, can you put me in the mind of a prostitute so that I can, so that I can understand at a, at a deeper meaning what Jesus might be indicating here? And so after several minutes of silence, a young woman from Eastern Europe spoke up in her broken English. God's. Everyone, she has someone to look down on, not us. We are at the low. Our families, they feel shame for us. No mother nowhere looks at her little girl and says, Honey, when you grow up, I want you to be a good prostitute. Most places, we are breaking the law. Believe me, we know how people feel about us. People call us names, four names, which I'm not going to read here, but synonyms for prostitute. We feel it too. We are the bottom. And sometimes when you're at the low, you cry for help. So when Jesus comes, we respond. Maybe Jesus meant that. Whoa. 
talk about hitting the nail on the head. It's, it's heartbreaking. And this is, this is a powerful picture of, of, of the disposition that all people need to have to enter the kingdom of God, that we need to have to, to come into relationship with Christ. And I don't want to just skim over this and say, oh, all of your theology is solid. All of you guys are good. We're Valley Baptist Church. We understand that, that all people are sinners. We're church-going people. Many of you were raised in the church. I think that the, the, the greater threat is that we are like these religious leaders. And so, so I don't want to just sort of skim over this without this confrontation of Jesus hitting us where it hurts. That to begin our relationship with God, we need to reach this place where this prostitute realizes that you're broken, you are nothing apart from him. Your sin is so vile. And I would go on to say that if your sin isn't, say, of, like, I, like my history is not of being a prostitute or a tax collector, and I would venture to say that n- nobody in this room is, but I don't want to make assumptions over people. But, but if your religious background has you prideful and arrogant and thinking that you're better than other people, I would say that your sin is far greater than the prostitute's sin. And you should tremble because Jesus is speaking to the religious people. He's not speaking to a prostitute right here. He's actually speaking to the religious people. And suddenly they're like, we answered this question, but this is not the direction that we thought Jesus was going to go. But Jesus is not finished with them. Now, remember, this whole conversation started with Jesus asking them a question about John the Baptist. Jesus isn't done with John the Baptist. So he's going to revisit John the Baptist. Um, so verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe him. And you seeing this did not even feel remorse afterward as to believe him. This is a fascinating verse. This, uh, this, this verse 32, I, am. Um, Struggling with how to present it to you all. Uh, The first thing I'd say is if you observe the text, there should be a word that jumps out at you a couple times, three times to be exact. This word believe. Now remember back to the fig tree. If you were to go back, I believe it's in verse 22. Um, uh, Verse, yeah, verse 22, verses 21 and 22 of the context. Remember, they they asked Jesus about the fig tree that had just died. Jesus, how did this happen? Not, Not why did this happen, but how did this happen? And Jesus then responds, and he answered them in verse 21. He said, truly I say to you, you have faith and do not doubt. You will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast in the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. And so this idea of believing, this whole context back there, if you had to turn your page, you can move back to this, this present context. Jesus is getting out of this whole relationship, not religion. Relationship. Relationship begins by belief, believing that Jesus is the Messiah, believing that Jesus came, as the scriptures foretold, believing that Jesus died on the cross for you, believing that, that his death resulted in our new life, our rebirth, our having this relationship with the Father. And the reason that this, this relationship was broken is because of sin. Not only did sin enter the world, and I believe through DNA that all humanity became sin, but because your DNA is hardwired as a sinner, you sin. And so in this, this word believe is used three times. Two times negatively and one time positively. He says, you did not believe him. What, what do they not believe about? Well, John the Baptist was, he was the forerunner of Christ. He was prepare the way, prepare the way. The Messiah is coming. The Messiah is here. Repent, get your hearts right. Believe upon him. It's not about me. It's about one that is greater than me. I'm not even worthy to tie his sandal. 
Then he says, tax collectors and believers. When John was in the River Jordan, calling out, challenging people's sins, naming their sins publicly, it wasn't the religious leaders that said, you know what, I'm taking off these religious garbs. I'm a, I'm a righteous sinner. I think that I'm better than everybody else. I need to go publicly and humble myself in front of everybody and repent and get right with God. It wasn't them. They stood up there and John said, you brood of vipers, who warned you? Who warned you? But the tax collectors and the prostitutes and what was Matthew's profession? The very man who God is using to write this? A tax collector. He says, they believed. They came. They responded. And even after John's death, after everything that you've seen, it says you did not, you did not even feel remorse afterward to believe him. That even after he was killed, after everything, as this picture has been developing for three years, you never reached that place where you felt remorse, where, where you changed your mind, where you recanted and you then humbled yourself and followed after me. Now, if belief is a word that's used three times and is super significant, there are two words that will be a little bit more difficult for you to find in the English. So in verse 32, this word, where he says, did not even feel remorse, that feeling remorse is actually the word, the Greek word for repentance, that you were not repentant. And up in verse 29, that first son, remember the first son? He said, Father, no, I'm not going to do it. But later he regretted it. That word regretted it is also repentance. He repented of what he did. He had a change of mind and then he adjusted his actions. Powerful stuff. Now, repentance is this word that we mess up in our thinking. This word is critical for us to understand theologically. The Burkhoff Systematic Theology, he, he defines repentance in this way. According to Scripture, repentance is holy and inward act. Okay, so I want to pause here. That, that repentance is totally a mental game. Okay, it's, it has nothing to do with any sort of action. Simply in your mind, there's a change of belief. In spiritual things with God, it's simply acknowledging, you know what, as I was a sinner, let's imagine I was a prostitute, I'm a tax collector, I'm doing all of these things. God confronts me with the truth. And deep in my heart when I'm broken, I say, Jesus is absolutely right about my sinful nature. Nothing has changed externally. I haven't changed my profession. I could still be doing, I, I, like this could happen in the act of something illicit and sinful that no external changes happen, but in your mind, I was wrong and God is right. That, that, that moment, nothing has changed. That is repentance. So, let me read this again. According to Scripture, repentance is holy and inward act and should not be confounded with the change of life that proceeds from it. Confession of sin and reparation of wrongs are fruits of repentance. The, the fig tree, remember? Repentance is totally just in our mind. That, that moment when you believe. Now, fruit can take a while. A picture of repentance, a few years ago, we as a church gave a book um, to, to alternatives during Sanctity of Human Life. It's a, it's a powerful book. Um, it's, it's the book, um, The Hand of God, if you've ever written it. This is a Jewish man. He, his name is Bernard Nathanson. He was the leading abortionist fighting for abortion back in the, the 60s and 70s, was a huge, huge guy in the whole Roe v. Wade case. But then something affected him, the ultrasound. He had committed something like 60,000 abortions. He was a huge proponent all the way through Roe v. Wade. Then in the mid-70s, this technology of the ultrasound came out. And so he was asked to go see this ultrasound. Uh, in his book, um, The Hand of God, he told a story of his journey from pro-abortion to pro-life, saying that viewing images from the new ultrasound technology in the 1970s convinced him 
of the humanity of the unborn baby, he, as he saw those images, immediately said, this is a child. This is a child. This is not a fetus. That mental change, that that mental adjusting of his uh, viewpoint led to change later. He later then became a huge pro-life guy. He actually converted to Catholicism, wrote his book, was, was, was one of the leading guys. The man who did 60,000 at least, I mean, that's just a conservative number, abortions, then became until his death, I think in 2001, I think is when he died or maybe later. He, he, he spent his whole life trying to fight against abortion. And it really is this beautiful picture of repentance that in his mind, he changed what he felt was life. And then once his mind was changed, fruit began to sort of multiply in his life. I can turn my notes here. And I think this is what Jesus is saying about the tax collectors and the prostitutes, is that when they were confronted with the truth of their sin in their minds, something changed. Now, fruit may have developed longer. I mean, the fig tree, I think it takes three years for a sign of one fruit to develop. Being confronted by Jesus, being confronted of our sin, it forces us to deal with this. Who is Jesus? Who am I? What, what are the consequences of my sin? And if you're a Christian, you have to have had this, play, this place of wrestling. I don't care if you come to Christ at six years old or at 96 years old that you need to wrestle with the implications of your sin and responding to Jesus is acknowledging, understanding how vile your sin is before him and, and really understanding how holy he is. This, this repentance has everything to do with the change of mind. It has nothing to do with actions that lead through that. And so your fruit might not be immediate. Some of us, not me, I don't know, like I've heard of people who are totally in the world. They're confronted by Jesus. They respond to Jesus. They believe, and then they, they cleaned up like that. That wasn't my story. I, I, like, I continued to struggle with sin for, for years, and some, some, some things, significant things, c- continued to sort of really cause turmoil in my soul. And, and I don't think that the turmoil in your soul is bad. Like in hindsight, I believe that I was a Christian at 22, but it took me a number of years to sort of work through some, some, some struggles of my flesh. But during those struggles, the, the emptiness, the fear, the, the concern I had about lack of fruit in my life that made me question, was I even saved? I believe that this is the grace of God convicting me, challenging me, helping me to become more like him. See, the change in my life wasn't repentance. Because I had repented and believed in what Christ said, I'd received his spirit. And now that his spirit had indwelt me, had baptized me, then as I'm living my life and as I'm going down the road of of doing sinful things, it was terrible. I remember when I was still drinking, and, I, and I, the funny thing is, I'm like, man, something's going on, but when I get drunk now, I just feel miserable. So I need to drink more. Like, I'm going to come out of the gates, like, like, let's do a whole bunch of shots and see if this makes me feel better. But, but it just made me feel worse. So growing in the Lord doesn't lead us to become more religiously righteous. Like, repentance leads us to this relationship. And then as we have this relationship with him, our sin, like the, the, oh man, the Bible tells us that, that the spirit has come to give us conviction. And so as we're convicted of our sin, that's a beautiful sign. That means that the spirit of God is within you and is, he's leading you and he's, he's protecting you. He, he wants you to be holy because he is holy, but we have no holiness to offer. I look at the apostle Paul. You know, we, could, we can talk trash about all the other apostles. They were like terrible, like they were nobodies. 
The, the Apostle Paul is different. He is the religious leadership of, of Israel during this time. He, he was up and coming. He says in his own testimony that, that, that he was blameless according to the law, that when he looked at the 613 commands of the Old Testament, and then you add all of the additional laws from the various rabbis, he says he was without blame. That's a big statement. And then if you follow his writing in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, after talking about the sort of the, the authenticity of the resurrection of Christ, he says that he is the least of all of the apostles. So we see this humbling of Paul. We see that when he looks at the 12 apostles, and then it's debatable whether Paul was a 12th or the 13th, or I guess maybe even the 14th, 12, 13, 14th, or possibly 14th, because we lost one. Um, there's a, that's a whole other discussion that I'm going to shut that file. And, and, and he says, of all of them, I'm the least of all of them. Then in Ephesians 3.8, he says, I'm the least of all of the saints. So when I look at all of the Christians, I'm the least of all of them because I was a persecutor of the church. I killed Stephen. But then you come to 1 Timothy 1.15. Nearing the end of his life to young Timothy he says it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. So Paul goes from the least of all the apostles the, then to the least of all of the Christians to then when he looks at all of sinners around the world, he is the absolute worst. You think, what is going on with the apostle? Like, what? Like, he wrote, like, I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament. Anything we know really about church life and how churches, God used him. And it's not that he's getting worse. I, I, would, I would speculate that he's actually getting more righteousness in Christ and his life is changing. But as he's walking closer with Christ, his appreciation for the holiness of God is growing. And now suddenly his small sins, what we call small sins, are so deeply convicted to him. So maturity in Christ, it doesn't mean that we start looking down on other people. I think what happens is when we see the quote-unquote prostitutes and, and tax collectors, we have way more sympathy and empathy for them because we know who we were apart from Christ. And now that we're in Christ, our sin might, from the external might look good, but oh, it just makes us sick because the, 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 we see how terrible our flesh is. So Jesus is trying to, these guys who are rejecting him, he's not bashing the religious leaders. What he's doing is he's trying to, he's trying to show them their sin so that they would respond. This week, he's going to die on the cross. And for these guys, just as much as the prostitutes and the sinners, and he wants them to respond to him. He wants each of us to respond to him. Now he's going to say, listen to another parable. He's going to go in. This one, let's talk through this one. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a, a vine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers. And then he went on a journey. Okay, so this guy, wealthy man, he owns a plot of land. He takes his plot of land. He, he, he puts in the vineyards. He puts in the wine press. He puts in a watchtower for, 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 for protection. He does all of the things that need to happen for a vineyard. Now, a vineyard, to go from when you, when you basically commission it as a working vineyard, it takes five years before there's uh, usable fruit that you can use for wine and, and the various things that they would have used for grapes. So he said, I'm going to bring in some, some vine makers. They're going to come in. They're going to care for the vineyard. And then I'm going to go on this journey. So we, we're not told how long he goes away for, but it's, it's conceivable that this guy is gone for five years. The way they would pay rent is that the owner would get a portion of the grapes. There's an obscure law in the Mishnah, which is the, the rabbinical teaching, is like by our terms, it's sort of like a squatter's law. If the person on the land could show that the landowner has been absent for so long or has been absent, they can claim ownership of the land. And so that, just to help fill you in on the contextual sort of what's happening in the story, um, the, the landowner leaves. Okay, now let's go move on here. Verse 34. When the harvest time approached, it could be five years later, he, that's the owner, sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive the produce. He is showing that he still is the owner of the land, that he has rights to the land. The land is not theirs. <clears throat> the vine growers took his slaves, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. So again, he sent another group. 
of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. So they beat maybe a couple, killed a couple, stoned a few more. But afterward, he sent his son to them. The landowner has a son. The son is the same authority as the father. Legally, they are one. There's no distinction between the two. That a son could go on the behalf of the father, and it is just like the father being there. And so, afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. Now, guys, I don't want you to miss the illusion here. I, I, uh, you guys see the story that's developing? God, Genesis, fall of man, sends prophets. What happened to the prophets? If you read through the Old Testament, it's cyclical. They beat one, they stoned another, they killed that one. I mean, if you want a, if you want a Cliff Notes version of, of what happened, go to Stephen's speech in Acts, what is that, Acts 5 or 4, whatever, wherever, like I think it's in 5 when they stoned Stephen. He goes through, he's like one after one. What's different? You killed all of the, the prophets. And now the father is sending his son, Jesus, the Messiah, who is standing before them. They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, verse 38, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. So that's the parable that Jesus tells. Now, I love this picture. This is like that Jesus is going to now ask these guys a question. And, and in asking this question, the, the image that I have, if you guys are familiar with the story back with David and Bathsheba, a year goes by, Bathsheba's pregnant. She had a little baby by this point. David's already taking care of business with killing her husband. He's now got the, you know, happy little wife and a baby and everything's going good. King David's just rolling along. Then all of a sudden, this guy, Nathan the prophet, comes along, remember? Now, Nathan the prophet says, hey, I'm coming from out in the countryside, and there's, there's this little boy. He got one little sweet little sheep or lamb. He pets it. He, he grooms it. He sleeps with it at night. They're like best of buds. And then there's this guy who has hundreds and thousands of sheep. And he comes in. He basically steals the little sheep for the boy and walks away. And David is furious. And David says, where is this guy? I'm going to hunt him down and kill him. And he looks at David and he's like, Jew. Ooh, ha. So this is exactly what Jesus is doing to these guys. Verse 40, the question. So Jesus told this parable about this, vin- this guy who owns the vineyard. He's gone through everything. They would have been furious as an agricultural people that this, this, guy, this is a hostile takeover of his land, killing all sorts of people. And Jesus says to them, the, the priest and the elders, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these vineyards? Or these vine growers. Again, they don't have a little discussion amongst themselves. Apparently, they're ready to answer. This is a simple question for them. And he said to them, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. He'll get them. Legally, he has them on their side. He can kill them all. And then he'll, he'll rent out the vineyard to another vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. So this is Jesus has just set them up. Israel, the nation, has taken God's temple hostage. They'd killed all of the prophets. They're in the, they're in the beginning of killing his son that he sent for them. And Jesus said to him, said to them, again, this is the second time over and over again. Did you guys never read the Bible? Like, here you are, the religious leaders. Don't you know what the Bible says? He says, did you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22. This verse about the chief cornerstone referring to Christ would be used all, like in Acts, Acts 4 comes to mind. It's used in Romans building this case that Jesus is the cornerstone or the capstone. The, the, the two most critical pieces of a structure you can you cannot remove this piece and have the structure still be sound and you cannot build the structure without this piece everything is contingent upon the cornerstone jesus is speaking to himself 
And he says in verse 34, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Ah, fig tree, remember? Fig tree covers this whole story. So now he tells him, you guys, you have all of this religion going on, but no relationship. You're supposed to be my spokesman, uh, connecting my people with me. You're supposed to be a light unto the world that Israel was supposed to be this light which brought all the peoples to worship the true God. And you guys have shown no fruit. You have all of the leaves, but there's no fruit. And as a result, it's going to be taken from you. 30 years from Jesus speaking the words, this temple will be torn apart stone by stone by the Romans. And he says he's going to give it to a people. And you just... You can't miss the illusion of, of, of the Gentiles, the church, that when the early church, the Jews are certainly a part of, of the church. This is not replacement theology. This isn't that God has replaced Israel. Romans 9 through 11 makes it very clear that, that God still has a plan happening for Israel. But in the last 2,000 years, it's been the Christian church, which is not distinct from Judaism. We've been grafted in to the olive tree of, of Israel, which is Romans 11. And as Paul writes in Romans 11 about that, that, that you have been grafted in, if, if the natural tree was chopped in half, don't think that the same thing can't happen to you. And he says, stand fast through faith. Keep grounded in your relationship with God so that you can produce fruit. So this is a stern warning to them. And they're like, by now, the light bulb is definitely coming on. But, but we're going to see here that they're like, by the end, like, he's talking about us. Oh, that's not good. Verse 44, he says, he who falls on the stone will be broken into pieces. Broken to pieces. But wait, let me read this lower. And he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So to me, there's two choices. When I, when I, like the big picture of what I think he's saying here is you can either fall on Jesus broken like the prostitute and tax collector, realizing how helpless you are apart from him. You can fall on him shattered and broken and then build your life on the solid rock of Jesus. Or your default position is to reject God, to reject Christ, and eventually that stone is going to be dropped on you and you, you will be destroyed, period. Like but the one who is saying this is saying, come to me, I offer you life. I will give my life as a sacrifice to all. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, heard, heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. There's a, there's, a, there's a warning for us. What are you building your life upon? Have you been going to church your whole life and you think because you don't swear, you tuck in your shirt, you comb your hair the right way, you can quote all kinds of Bible verses? You know worship songs? You even know the old hymns? You, like if you're building your foundation on these works, if you think that you're okay with God because of these works, you should really examine. Have you truly been broken by God where you have come to him and you've given your life to him? Now, you could know all those things. Everything I just said, there's nothing wrong with like being able to quote out of the, the King James. There's nothing wrong with being able to quote a bunch of verses. There's nothing wrong with knowing the old hymns. There's nothing wrong with coming to church and tucking in your shirt and combing your hair. Like, there's, there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But if you think that all of that stuff is providing your foundation for security with him, then you're, you've missed the boat. We need to understand that we're not saved by works. We're saved by Christ's precious blood that was shed for us on the cross. Whether you're quote-unquote righteous or whether you're a terrible Gentile sinner like, like I was, am like, it's all about Jesus. And as we repent, as we change our mind about who we are and who he is, the spirit of God comes upon us 
and He produces His fruit in our lives. It's not our fruit. I think that this is the beautiful picture. If you want to really do a study on this, Romans 6, 7, and 8 are super critical. Romans 6, Paul is talking about the Gentile person who's falling back into their sinful nature of their flesh, which they are more comfortable with. Romans 7 talks about the religious person like Paul, who his sinful nature, his propensity was to fall back under the law. We, we all have our natural bents of, of, you know, like my bent might be different for yours, what, what falling back into flesh looks like. And then in Romans 8, it's all about walking with the Spirit and allowing the Spirit of God to cultivate fruit in our lives. It's our only hope. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I thank you that it's not about good works. It's not about being religious. It's not about trying to look Christian or look religious. It's not about earning our way to being right with you, for there is nothing that we can do to to earn our way into heaven. Your scripture makes it clear. And so, Lord, when I look at this first son who rejected you or his father and said, I will not do that. But later had a change of mind that led to action. Father, each of us in this room have rejected you at times. That we've resisted your will in our lives. And I thank you that the the picture of this first son shows us that you're a God of forgiveness, that you're a God of mercy, that you're a God that will work with us And so, Lord, I pray for each person in this room that you would help us um, to be able to have a change of mind and to come to you as Savior, to, 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 to throw our lives on Christ. Father, our sin is a is a terrible thing. It is a powerful thing. It is a from a human perspective can can feel like a fun thing. And so, Lord, we need your help. We need you in our lives. We need you to transform us. We need you in order to produce fruit. Father, we pray that you would help us to heed the warning that's given about these vine growers that took the owner's land hostage. May we never do that. May Valley Baptist Church always be your church. May we be a church that's filled with grace, filled with love, filled with mercy. For we are a people who have received so much mercy and so much grace and so much forgiveness. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.